Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Beautiful Suit by H.G. Wells. This was first published in Collier's Magazine, April 1909, uh, under the title A Moonlight Fable. But uh, the version I read was from uh, the magazine of horror, September 1964, um, under the title The Beautiful Suit. Um, I, I really like to think of this as a horror story. I don't know that that's what H.G. Wells is going for, but I love that idea that this is a horror story. Wow. Um, is it a horror story for not, you? I had not thought of it that way. So ha, read the story for me. How, how is it? Uh, well, okay. So the way I read the story, there's a, a, a strangely situated narrator mm-hmm. who sounds as if he's speaking to a kid, to a little child. Um, and he's telling the story about another someone called a little man, mm-hmm. um, which could be a boy. Um, and he tells how this little man, as he calls him, has a gorgeous, gorgeous suit that his mother makes for him. He loves the suit. He looks forward to wearing the suit. He wants to wear the suit everywhere. He just imagines how wonderful it would be to wear the suit at this occasion, that occasion, running through the woods, all sorts of things. But his mother tells him, no, he has to, he has to preserve this suit. This is uh, the most beautiful suit. It is, in fact, his wedding suit. And she wraps all the buttons up in tissue paper and she puts protectors on the cuffs and other places that might uh, be frayed in the course of storage. And every now and then on Sundays, sometimes going to church, she lets him take the suit out and wear it. He's thrilled by it. But one night he just decides he's he's going to wear it and he he puts it on. And shinnies down the uh, the drain pipe, I guess, into the yard. Looking back, every blind in the house is drawn except for the one to his window. He knows his mother is asleep and he goes off through the woods and he sees a pond and the pond looks gorgeous. And he, he swims across, you know, the pond in his suit, obviously, um, that moonlit adventure. Uh, which contrasts with the sunlight in which we first see it in the first paragraph, that moonlit adventure is not going to preserve the suit. And he he thinks about all these wonderful things. And uh, then we find out at the very end that his body is found at the end of a stone pit. Um, And it sort of sounds as if he's been driven by his own desire to wear the suit into hallucinating that, uh, a quarry somewhere in the vicinity of his home was actually a pond and he threw himself into it instead of swimming in his suit he's been crushed and mangled by his fall and that's the end mm-hmm. so if you read it that way um it's a story of psychological self-deception and and other things but um but i didn't read that as a horror story so did i read the story the way did I get the plot the way you read it? And and if I didn't, please show me your way. But if I but either way, um, what makes it a horror story to you, Jesse? Well, I, I, I I'm not sure that it is a horror story, but I like thinking about it that way. And and then in thinking about that it, that way, what I like so much about this story is that it's so open. 
doesn't tell you what it's doing. It doesn't have a neat explanation. Um, there's another story very similar to this by H.G. Wells that I, I just love, I adore. It's called The Door and the Wall. And it has the same ending. Uh, the protagonist, um, the main character, dies in a quarry, having probably fallen. Um, and it also does not explain what's going on. Um, so, in thinking about it as a horror story, one of the things that I, I note right away is, as you did, and you were very careful about this, and I think we should be very careful about this, in that it doesn't say he's a child, but it doesn't say he's an adult, and we must infer that he is a child. Um, there once was a little man whose mother made him a beautiful suit of clothes. So, it starts like a fairy tale, right? Um yeah. We we don't know at this point he's a child, and yet we must infer that he is a child later on. There's no mention of a father or any other people in the house. There's just the mother and the child, and that's it. And to me, I started thinking about, like, well, if I start questioning what the narrator or the main character is, is that he's he's a boy and not not a man then he's going to grow, and his suit won't work anymore, right? So it, there's something strange about that. And then his mother said it's his wedding dress, or his wedding uh, suit, which also is incredibly strange, because if he's a child, then he won't fit into that suit when he gets older. So I started thinking, okay, well, why is that? And... Thinking about it, I started thinking, well, maybe this is actually a kind, the kind of story you would tell, or a kind of story for children who are going to die. Children who have, uh, like, a, a horrible disease, like, you know, a virulent, you know, aggressive cancer. And this is actually his, not his, his wedding suit, but rather his, his dying suit, his coffin suit. And... It's also about, I think, the relationship between um, men and women and men and mothers. In that it's possible that the mom's saying, you just need to be careful. This suit is is you. You have to be careful not to hurt yourself this way, not to hurt yourself that way. And we have to wrap up the buttons. And yet I want you to be a man, right? And the boy needs to grow up but is not going to be able to. And this death that results at the end is actually not as bad as it seems because he was going to die anyways. And we've got a series of experiences in the world. And what, what's so interesting is this reading actually resonates with me the more I read the story because it talks about how he imagines what what he, it would be like to wear this suit to all the places he's ever gone and also all the places he's ever read about or heard about. Um, it's it's almost like the suit is a suit of manliness that it will make him an adult. It makes, you know, the clothes make the man expression. There's something to that, that when you put on a certain, you know, piece of clothing, a certain garment, it gives you a certain kind of character 
not just a lab coat, but also like a special hat or judge's robes, right? There's a kind of connection there, and yet he can't fully obey his mother and, and be a man. And so I, I think about this as a kind of a horror story for children, and I find it incredibly interesting that way. I'm not sure that it's supposed to be read um, any one particular way, but I like reading it this way. There is a, a horrible reading here that seems to me entirely plausible, um, which, which I'd like to, to offer in a, in a moment because it, it works so well with what you've just been suggesting. But I'd also like to say the indefinable nature of the allegory going on here. What exactly is going on? Who exactly are we dealing with? Uh, even what genre are we dealing with? Um, it's not just that it's hard to get the answer. I think that the story is fundamentally refractory, that there are answers, and each of them may have an appeal of its own, but there's no way to just say, well, the story means this and nothing but this. Mm. But, but within, I mean, for example, one could say, since the, the little man thinks how wonderful it, it would be to, to run and, and, and move in this suit, which is his suit, it is defines him, as you suggested, Jesse, uh, one could think of this as what a mother gives a child. It is, it is the strong limbs and the, the quick mind mm -hmm. that he's born with and can grow into, but she wants him to preserve it because she wants him to be innocent and perfect on his wedding day. I mean, one could read it that way. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's one way to allegorize the beautiful suit. There's another way. Um, there is no mention of a father. It's clear that we can't really take this suit to be a literal suit for a literal boy because then it can't be his suit on his wedding day if he is to wed some later time when he's a man, because uh, he'll change in his own physical size, as you said. So if we can't find a naturalistic physical explanation for this, we have to find some other way of understanding it. When a nun takes on her habit, it is a suit that indicates that she is now the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. the way the story says this um, his suit he would never have another nearly so fine his mother tells him he would never have another nearly so fine as the suit she had made for him he must save it and save it and only wear it on rare and great occasions it was his wedding suit she said she didn't say it was to be his wedding suit. Mm -hmm. She may, in fact, have said it was his wedding suit. By this suit, I marry you. Ah. You are forever involved in this incredible, incestuous relationship with me. Not sexual, we understand, but you become... My partner, not my child. My job is not to raise you and release you into the world, but to keep you tidy and perfect mm. and live in my home. And if on occasion we go out on a Sunday to the church 
at that point, in that place of worship of the greater ideals, you can accompany me wearing your wedding suit and we will go in together as a couple, just you and I. So he is in that first paragraph, a little man, not simply because he's a boy, which is how one reads it at first, because the tone is fairy tale tone. He is a belittled man. He has been made and kept little. He's been infantilized mm. by an overprotective, dominating mother. And when he finally breaks free and runs out to enjoy the fullness of the world and a more natural environment from within her house to out in the fields and the pond and the stone quarry, it turns out that he is not equipped to be able to understand the outside world properly. Her beautiful suit killed him. And in that sense, I think of it as a horrifying mm. story. Nice. Um, I like, I, I've selected a number of, of, um, lines throughout, and I spent a lot of time in reading this story, actually just looking up all the, all the plants in the garden, because it is not, <laughs> yes. it is not a vegetable garden, and neither is, is it a flower garden, it's actually a botanical garden, um, almost all of which, if not all of which, are known for their scent rather than for any other particular thing. And I think that that's interesting. Um, but I, I want to read some of these lines and just so you can see how they lead so inexorably to the, uh, an amazing story. So this is on, our version is on page 75. One night, when he was dreaming of it, after his habit, he dreamt he took the tissue paper from one of the buttons and found its brightness a little faded, and that distressed him mightily in his dream. He polished the poor faded button and polished it, and, if anything, it grew duller. And later on on page 75, For you must know... His mother did, with repeated and careful warnings, let him wear his suit at times on Sundays. And then she worries uh, when he does wear the suit that he his suit must be protected from the strong rays of the sun. So we get the line, too strong a sunlight for its colors, she uses a sunshade. It's, it's like, that's really interesting, right? So he's worried about the buttons losing in his dreams his button the buttons losing the brightness and she's losing about the uh, worried about the suit losing its color um very very interesting and then oh did you have could, something could i, I yeah could i insert something here jesse mm -hmm. um at the end of that passage that you're reading mm -hmm. it says you know, he brushed it over, folded it exquisitely as she had taught him. So he's being an obedient, whatever he is, mm -hmm. little man, and put it away again. And the presumption is that the it is the suit. But I'm still worried about the suit. So I'd like to just read that opening paragraph, the one that starts out as if it's a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Because I think one way of reading it is to see it as the suit being 
the fullness of the world that is made available to this boy if only he were allowed to use the suit. There was once a little man whose mother made him a beautiful suit of clothes. It was green and gold. Think of yourself being out on a meadow on a sunshiny day. And woven so that I cannot describe how delicate and fine it was. So it's, it's a profusion of, of different images. No flat, flat uh, fields of single color. And there was a tie of orange fluffiness that tied under his chin. So that orange fluffiness could be the sun itself. And of course, it's, it's holding him, right? It's, he is tied by his mother's suit. And the buttons in their newness shone like stars. I don't think that simile is irrelevant here. It's, it's the night as well as the day he was proud and pleased by his suit beyond measure. Now, that's an interesting ambiguity. Mm -hmm. That is, he could have been pre pleased beyond his ability to measure his pleasure, or he could have been pleased by this suit, which was beyond measure. That is, it wasn't a suit that was measured to him. It was the whole world that he was being given in this suit that beyond measure can apply to two different parts of the sentence. And he stood before the long looking glass, which is lovely. I mean, it's, it's a pier glass, you know, a tall uh, looking glass, but it could also be a glass for long looking. Mm. Stood before the long looking glass when first he put it on. So astonished and delighted with it that he could hardly turn himself away. And I don't think that it's because of his ego. I don't think he can't turn himself away because, my goodness, don't I look beautiful in the suit. I think he can't turn away because it was so astonishing mm -hmm. and so delightful. This is the world. His mother, as mothers do, has given him life. She's given him the world. And by contrast, at the end, when he sneaks away at night, the garden in the moonlight, this is on our page 76, mm -hmm. the garden in the moonlight was very different from the garden by day, the one that you've just directed our attention to. Moonshine was tangled in the hedges and stretched in phantom cobwebs from spray to spray, tangled webs, right? The night is not open and, and enveloping and uh, enriching. The night grabs at you and holds you back. Every flower, which is what you want us to look at, it's a, it's a human garden if your reading is uh, to be followed. It's, an, uh, it's a botanical garden. Every flower was gleaming with white or crimson black. Aha, bloody black. It's like a book, right? White and black. And the air was a quiver with the thridding of small crickets and nightingales singing unseen in the depths of the trees. So he is captured in imagery that comes right out of Keats. It's the unseen that gets us more than the seen, the unheard that makes the music that takes us away into the realm of death. The suit is, in a sense, the opposite of the dangers one finds in the world. The mother wants him to preserve his innocence by smothering him into being her little man. But he wants something else and it kills him. So I'm using the garden that you point to as a, as a fulcrum in which we balance that sunlight view, which reflects 
the happy aspect of the suit against the the nighttime view, which looks beautiful until we realize the meanings of words like tangled and cobweb that lead ultimately to his death in the stone pit. There's some um, other, this is just a wonderful page, page 76. Um, Listen to this. It seemed to him the moonlight was not common moonlight, nor the night a common night. And for while he lay quite drowsily with this odd persuasion in his mind, or for a while he lay quite drowsily with an odd persuasion in his mind. And then this line I've highlighted and put a little star beside and wow, you know. Thought joined unto thought, like things that whisper warmly in the shadows. And actually, on this page, warm or warmly or warmer shows up three times. And I was like, that's interesting. It's a warm night. And then a little farther down. He knew now that he was going to wear his suit as it should be worn. He was afraid, terribly afraid, but glad, glad Right, afraid twice, glad twice. And then the next paragraph. And trembling at the thing he meant to do, the air was full of a minute clamor of crickets and murmurings of the little living things. So this is the only other beings in this story, other than the mom and the and the narrator, I guess. Right. And then farther along, he stood before his mother's house, and it was white and nearly as plain as by day, and every window blind but his own, shut like an eye that sleeps, that line. But this next one gets me. The trees cast still shadows like intricate black lace upon the wall. So we've got this idea of the house as a white face, right, with the eyes shut, and lace going over the shadow of the, shadowing the face. It's like the preview of the mother at the funeral, right? Wearing a veil. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those lines, every flower was gleaming white or crimson black and the air was a quiver with a thridding of small. So it's the, the world is alive for him. And then as he goes through the garden past those, those, those first, um, you know, clinging, clinging plants, it becomes just full of scent. Listen to this. He did not follow the neat set paths that cut the garden squarely, but thrust across the beds and through the wet, tall scented herbs, through the nightstock and the nicotine and the clusters of phantom white mallow flowers and through the thickets of the southern wood and lavender and knee deep across a wide space of mignette. So he's actually doing the opposite of what his mom would want, right? He's tearing up the suit as he goes through these sharp things. A little farther down. And though the thorns of the bramble scored him deeply and tore threads from his wonderful suit, and though burrs and goosegrass and havers caught and clung to him, he did not care. He did not care. That's repeated twice. For he knew it was all part of the wearing. Wow. For which he had longed. I am glad I put on my suit, he said. I am glad I wore my suit. It's fascinating that it's past tense. Mm -hmm. At that moment, he is wearing his suit. And he's not saying, I am glad I am wearing my suit. 
And he's not saying, I'm glad I put on my suit. He's saying, I'm glad I wore my suit. And, you know, to wear does not mean only to clothe. It also means to rub away. He has, in fact, worn his suit by putting it against the experience of the world. Yeah. And all the, the world is so alive for him at this on this night with his mom not there, right? Beyond the hedge he came to the duck pond, or at least to what was a duck pond by day, but by night it was a great bowl of silver moonshine, all noisy with singing frogs of wonderful silver moonshine, twisted and clotted with strange patternings. Um, and he, he actually just, like, walks right through the pond, which is... It's so not, it's almost like he's in defiance of his mother. And then the most extraordinary thing happens. And he says, soft moth, he cried. He sees a moth. Dear moth and wonderful night, wonderful night of the world. Do you think my clothes are beautiful, dear moth? (laughs) Well, moths, they eat clothes, right? Um, (laughs) As beautiful as your scales and all this silver vesture of, Earth and sky. Wow, this kid's got great vocab. <laughs> right. Next, next paragraph, the second to last paragraph, and the moth circled closer and closer until at last its velvet wings just brushed his lips. Dot dot dot. Next paragraph is him dead. Now, I, I didn't but think about it the first time I read. Book. Yep. Before you go on to his death, I just want to point out that Wells was, in fact, quite well, quite well uh, educated in the science of his times. And although it is common for people to say that moths eat uh, clothing, uh, that's why we have mothballs to protect against it. um, And I'm sure your reference here is right. I think he also, Wells also knew it's not actually the moths that eat the clothing. It's their larvae that they lay in. In other words... It's the infant, it's the, the, the little moths, like the little man, that eats the suits. I, it's, what it's, it's what's necessary for them to grow into moths in the world. He, he was obsessed, uh, at least uh, literarily, with sort of repeating themes and figuring them out. He has a story about um, two moth scientists who get into a fight, uh, about Microlepidoptera, <laughs> right? The tiny, tiniest of of moths an invisible moth comes to haunt one of the characters um but i i didn't realize it the first time i read it but reading it again dear moth is almost also dear mother right and Uh. it, it doesn't just like land on his suit and you know sit there it brushes his lips it's a it's a kiss goodbye in a certain sense oh that's beautiful jesse Moth, mother, mothest. It's really, it's really interesting. And, and then when we get that final paragraph, and his suit is destroyed, right? Beautiful clothes, little bloody, foul and stained with duckweed from the pond. But the, the, this is the line, this is terrific. But his face was a face of such happiness that had you seen it, you would have understood indeed. How that he had died happy, never knowing that cool and streaming silver from the duckweed in the pond. So, there's something uh, beautiful about this poem, <laughs> poem about this story that is a very poem-like in its in its repetition, 
and its framing. It's a it's a metaphor for for something, but it's not one thing. I think it's for uh, allows you to really participate in it. I really love this story. I do too. I, I'm so glad that you recommended it for us. I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've both agreed that although there are individual, th there are unitary readings we can give the story, we're not required to make just one. Mm -hmm. um, but I do wonder, uh, given that the story begins uh, with the address to the to the hearer, you were hypothesizing one possible hearer being a, a child with a fatal disease, um, it, it begins with an, a direct address. Um, there was once a little man. I cannot describe how delicate and fine it was. So, you know, the narrator is speaking to somebody. And then at the end, it says, you would not have known, right? You. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, what what do you take to be uh, not maybe only one. What what could be the telling situation here? Mm -hmm. What kind of narrator is telling what kind of story to what kind of listener? And and in reply to that, I would point out that um, some of the things that the the narrator reports to the listener could not be known by a human narrator. Sure, That's, they could be made up, um, but. But no, no human being could literally know what the last thought was going through the mind of the boy, uh, the little man. So what, what would it take to be the relationship of the narrator to the listener? If I were to, you know, take on the task of filming this, I would have it be told, uh, you know, to a kid in a hospital bed um, by either a nurse or an aunt or somebody like that. You know, this kid who is going to die. But this is your gentle way of saying, you know, just go out and play with those kids right now in the in the garden, right? Um, and it's it's very comforting story. It's a horror it's a horror story that's incredibly comfortable, comfortable and and uh, comforting. <laughs> I think that that would be a nice frame for it. And maybe it doesn't even need a a tail frame, you know. It just begins with a kid being told this story in the hospital bed shows the transition into the into the story itself with the narration over it and maybe coming back a couple of times and then we never see the kid's response at the end wow wells leaves it up to us mm -hmm. which as he says in his experiment in autobiography that that um one of his his great nonfiction books about himself um he said that, you know, of all of the things that he was in life, playwright, uh, short story writer, journalist, the one thing that he always was, at least sought to be, was a teacher. I guess he's left it so that we will find that there's always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.